Hello listeners, I'm Debbie C with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host M. Johal talks with Lizzie Borden, the award-winning independent filmmaker. Together, they discuss Lizzie's expansive filmography, including her cult classic Born in Flames, as well as her creative processes and some of the inspirations and experiences that have made her art into what it is today. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi there, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. Really excited to have filmmaker and artist Lizzie Borden with us. Welcome, Lizzie. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> Lizzie, wonder if we can begin with you introducing yourself a little bit. Yes, my name is Lizzie Borden, and it's exciting that you are involved with an art program as well as a film program because you may know, but I started in the art world and I never went to film school. So people sometimes think that I'm more of a film person, but actually my films were inspired by the films and the artwork, the films made in art galleries by artists. That was mostly my inspiration. And it was also very political. I was inspired by second wave feminism. But truly, it was seeing a lot of the artists like Joan Jonas making her videos and Vito Acconci and Richard Serra making small films that made me think of film almost as a three-dimensional artwork because so often those kinds of films were displayed in galleries. And I worked on some of them or with some of those artists in New York at that very magical time in the late 70s and the 80s. Unfortunately, it's gone now. That whole community is gone. Mm -hmm. As you were in that milieu of working with artists in collectives, collaboratively in other ways, in experimental ways, wondering if you can speak a little bit about your experimental documentary film, Regrouping. Well, actually, I never worked in a collective. And the truth is, the regrouping is being restored now. And it wasn't an actual documentary. I would call it an experimental documentary because it did start out being a documentary, and then it got turned on its head in a way because the subjects I was trying to make a documentary about started to be at war with me. So I took the footage and I messed with it and I brought in a second group and that group was a kind of commentary on the first group. And then I cut it in a very experimental way. And then I put it in a closet for literally decades because the women who were in the first group were really angry at me. And it showed in three places when it first came out at the anthology in Edinburgh and I think one other place. And then when it came out of the closet, it showed in those three places again. And I'm actually going to New York at the end of May for the restoration screening of it. And it was very it's very strange because in some ways, the technique of layering sound and the techniques of editing where you hear many, many things at the same time and the it, way it's edited with a lot of things happening really fast and you're not really sure how the narrative goes, if there is one at all, sort of suggested the way that Born in Flames is edited, but with a difference in that there was an antagonistic relationship with 
the women in the first group in regrouping. And that's why it's called regrouping. It was actually a title suggested by Vito Acconci, but in Born in Flames, I wanted to do something very different because the women in regrouping were all white women and they were all, I would say, middle-class women. And I wanted, at that point, I had been very, very politicized and I wanted there to be the, I wanted to break out of that downtown, the downtown, I would say white middle-class milieu. And so I wanted there to be black women in it. I wanted there to be women not of that culture and intersectional, even though that word had not been um, coined at that time. So that was different. And I, I did not want there to be that kind of antagonism. So I wanted everyone to have her own voice simultaneously. So that's what I did. That's what made it very, very different. But there were similarities, although regrouping is much more experimental and it's black and white, but it did come very much out of the art world. And the original women in it were all SVA, School of Visual Arts students. But yes, it started out as a documentary. I don't know that I could ever make a straight documentary without <laughs> messing with it. <laughs> and wondering at the time that you were making the film, the political social context of the scene then, and also in terms of how it overlapped with artists working there, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to the context that film came out of that early mid 70s New York context and what were some of the ideas that were circulating in terms of the kind of form your own filmmaking and experimental practices took? Well, there were so many ideas at the same time, and some of them ended up inspiring Born in Flames. I wanted to get away from a lot of the art world ideas, and I turned my back in a way on the art world because it seemed so programmatic. Because I was an art critic for a while while I was trying to be a painter. And what happened was that the rules of the art world were too strict. And it was very much Clement Greenberg. And I found that I knew too much about art. And that interfered with me being a painter, because I felt it's all been done before. And the rules of the picture plane and all of that stuff, I had studied too much to be a painter. And I knew everybody because I was so, so, so young when I was writing. I was allowed to meet everybody. I mean, it was such a heady experience. I mean, as I was at those tables at Maxis, Kansas City, meeting Robert Smithson and, and you know, I knew Richard Serra. I mean, all of these people, while they were having these knockout, drag out arguments. And it was it was extraordinary. But I I just felt that I was... I needed to be less, I needed to be in a way ignorant to paint. I needed, I was too much in my head. I can't even read what I wrote back then. I don't understand that language anymore. But there were groups like Art and Language that were reading a lot of Marxist and Leninist texts. And Catherine Bigelow was much more involved with them than I was. You know, I, wrote a little bit for those magazines, but I don't even understand what that means anymore. But a key idea from those groups was what inspired Born in Flames, because I kept being caught on the idea of the woman question in the Marxist text. Like, well, what is the woman question? Does it mean that for any kind of, let's say, revolution, 
the women would be like, oh, let's deal with the women later. And it was at the time where I also was very distressed by the fact that a lot of the women who I wrote about and was interested in in the art world were women like Joan Jonas and Yvonne Rayner and Trisha Brown and um, Hannah Wilkie. And some of the women did work with their naked bodies and Carolee Schneemann, for example, but they weren't as respected as the men, these macho men who did big sculptures or you know, I knew a lot of women who did more traditional artwork, but they weren't making as much money. And of course, still valid, you know, valid argument that women are not as represented in museums, although that has changed to a large degree. But then it was a huge, a huge disparity. So what happened was that that was a secondary degree feminism really radicalized me in that respect. And being in New York, uh, the politics of being in New York with New York to the mayor, you no, know, the country to the mayor dropped dead with no social services and feeling really beleaguered that way as a woman, you know, politically in the country, feeling as if the whiteness and the middle classness of it had to be addressed, but also thinking that if women were to be pushed to the side, who would be most vulnerable? Obviously, Black women, those on a gender spectrum who would be most vulnerable. So I thought those are not the women who I see in the circle below, let's say, 14th Street or 23rd Street. So I had to search for the women who would be part of that. And so that was the premise for Born in Flames after social cultural revolution. I had to make it a social cultural kind of not an extreme revolution because I felt like that couldn't happen in a big capitalist country. But those ideas were some of the ideas downtown. But I was never in a collective. I mean, some of regrouping explored the idea of like a consciousness raising group as opposed to a group that came together to accomplish something, like a something actual and real and specific. And comparing those ideas, a group in their 20s and a group in their 30s. Actually, the group in the 30s, one of the women was Barbara Kruger. That was bizarre. That was before she was famous. So it was really an interesting time because everyone was kind of just around, just becoming who they were. But I decided not to go to film school because I didn't want to know anything. And I don't think Born in Flames could have existed had I gone to film school because any teacher would have said, wait, you're starting a film. It's not a documentary. You don't know where it's going. You're just going to go until it becomes something. And that's what I did. And I did that for five years until it did become something. I didn't even know who the characters were going to be. I didn't know if there was going to be a narrative and what the narrative was going to be. So it was blind faith that I would discover something by the end. And I did. But I don't know how I did. And it only ended because Ulrich Greger from the Berlin Film Festival said, well, if you finish by February, and that was five years in, it'll be in the festival. And I thought, oh my God, I don't have Asian women. I don't have, I don't have Latinas. I had like maybe one of each in minor worlds. But then I thought, well, there's a language problem there and it will take me years. So I might as well just finish. There were so many different kinds of ideas, but a lot of them were very contradictory. For example, Carl Andre was very big in the social organizing, demonstrating against museums, even for the admission of women, yet 
that was that thing with Anna Mendieta. That's something I don't know that I'll be able to do it. I've been wanting to make a series about Anna Mendieta for years, but there are so many now that I may not be the first to get there. You know, I was the first years ago, but nobody would do it. And now there are more famous people trying to do that story. So there were so many ideas, but I stopped going to galleries for a while when I started making films. But there were a lot of films in the art world. There were just so many films that people were seeing. But what a lot of the young male filmmakers were caught up with were trying to be like the new wave at that time. And there were some women downtown who were not that, like Vivian Dick. They were political in their way because she was from Ireland. Of course, she was political. So there were just so, and then of course, there was that whole Andy Warhol thing. I never met him. I never knew that. And Basquiat was a little later. Basquiat was the early 90s. Everything changed with Basquiat and the money. Well, Julian Schnabel, of course, and Keith Haring and AIDS changed everything. So there was a period of time where we were actually the first gentrifiers. We didn't think of ourselves that way. You know, we all had lofts for under $400 a month. People had had apartments in the Lower East Side for $80 a month. Some people were smart and they bought them and they're now landlords. (laughs) (laughs) They were smart. I wasn't. (laughs) I was going to ask you, you know, Born in Flames is just such a legendary underground film. And in terms of its reception at the time when it came out in 1983, it's just so far reaching in terms of the questions it delves into. When you think about reception back when it came out to it um, right now, how do you see its um, reception or how the conversations changed and the way they're brought back in terms of viewing the film? You know, it's so interesting. It's the same film. And as that rolls through time, the conversations change. And that's what interests me because unfortunately, COVID has made it really difficult for me to see how those change because I'm unable to actually go to Q&As and see how younger generations perceive it. Because the last I was able to do that was around Occupy Wall Street. And what I noticed was the very different reactions of young men who could finally relate to the film. Because when it first came out, it was just a little scrappy do-it-yourself indie. I mean, the first time I actually saw it in public was at the Franklin Furnace with a pull-down screen with a bunch of folding chairs, people seeing it that way, there was no big deal. I mean, yes, it got, there was an article in the New York Times about railing against it because it had gotten a grant that D.A. Pennybaker had helped me get, where it said, this is how we spend our public money. What a shame. What a terrible movie. We should not be wasting our money on films like this, right? But then also critics were also blaming me for retreading politics. In other words, the Black Panther kind of stuff or Bader Meinhof, that was archaic. And that why was I doing that? And that was not at all my intention. With the women bearing arms, it was much more about asking questions. Is this valid? I was not promoting anything. I was much more asking a series of questions, which I think people got later on. It was really a lot more about a more current discussion of how do you change things systematically? So I think people got that. And then the other thing, too, is the discussion over time, which one thing that has changed. I mean, first of all, I never imagined that Born in Flames would be relevant 
decades afterwards, I thought a lot of the issues involving women, especially would be, would be solved, you know, that equal pay, you know, choice, all these things, but oh my God, have things gone backward in this country? It's shocking. But the other, the one thing that has changed for the good is discussions around gender. So I think that young people have been able to see some of the characters in the film and they've been able to relate to them, to the fact that they look, they look somewhere borderline, some of them. And that is more, that's more like people look today, some of them. They're not actor, they're not Hollywood looking. And I do think that a few of them would have had, have transitioned if that had been available to them back in the day. But I think that some of the ideas in it are more appropriate for today than back then. And when it first came out, I don't think guys could relate to it at all. It was just some feminist propaganda that they just, they just brushed off. And the politics of it just seemed to be re- retrograde to the, the 60s. And I wasn't even thinking about the 60s. I was, of course, of course, everyone thought about Vater Meinhof, you know, of course, one thinks about those things because you only think about guerrilla warfare as it has existed in the past. In fact, the first title I was thinking of for Born in Flames was Les Guerrières after Monique Wittig, but, but Vivian Dick called one of her movies Guerrière Talks. And I also thought people would mispronounce it as guerrilla and I had asked Mayo Thompson to write a song for the film. It was called Born in Flames. And I just loved the title, Born in Flames. So I called the whole film Born in Flames. Lizzie, there's so much uh, going on in the film. You know, first of all, just the premise of imagining a, a social democratic revolution happening. It engages in questions of feminism and futurity. It's it's also a kind of portrait of New York in a particular time as a, a setting, the urban decay renewal. But there's also you know, any questions of aesthetics and politics when they're put together, there's a political potency to your film that drives it that's really quite energetic and very rare to find in what would be art house films or in traditional political agitprop. It, it's something uh, very unique to the film. It's hard not to get caught up in its um, sense of urgency when watching it for the first time. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to because I know there'll be university students in film and art listening to this interview. What was the form of your creative process? And of course, the editing process, as you mentioned, was several years. Uh, I can't remember, was it five or, or six years? But there was a particular, your, your visual arts background certainly helped you as opposed to a, a traditional filmmaking background. And I think that's really fascinating because it took all of those pieces to make it come together in the beautiful way it was. Thank you for that. Well, here's the thing is you can have an idea out of anger and passion, but you can't stay angry for six years. The other thing is that when you don't have money, you have time because I can only shoot when I had a couple of hundred dollars, but I had an editing machine, an old, it's called a Steenbeck in the old days where you actually cut the film and you tape it together. And I like the idea of speed and speed is urgency. And I had this thing about long, boring art films. I didn't like them. 
<laughs> at that point, I was not even a, I, I didn't even understand how to like a film like John Dealman, although I've come to see it as it's one of my favorite films now. But I didn't like maybe because it was too many times at the old anthology where they used to have those seats where you feel like you're in your own little space pod. It's like black velvet on both sides. And I always fell asleep in five minutes, but I wanted to do something that created a sense of pushing forward of urgency in the urgency. You have to do something. So because I could only edit in between shoots, I kept making it faster, faster, faster. So it's the technique of moving it faster and going over the same stuff over and over and shooting stuff that I I ended up shooting on reversal so I could throw out what I didn't want. And I ended up throwing out so much and then sometimes using or shooting stuff that didn't turn out, but I had eight frames that did. So I would use, oh, well, it wasn't a total waste. I have eight frames. So I would throw that in. So I would be able to create a sense of urgency by how I edited it. And editing is like writing. So instead of having a script beforehand, I created a script through the editing and Editing was my favorite thing because I could do that by myself. The truth is the actual shooting process was exhausting. You know, it was just me. I had either an old Cadillac or a Lincoln Continental with a fake permit. In those days, they didn't really check. It was a fake permit. I parked in the front of my loft, kept it there. On a shooting day, I'd pick everybody up. I'd drop everybody off. Those were exhausting days. I ended up buying one of those old cameras that had like rabbit ears on top and an anagra. It was just exhausting. Maybe 12 people, I'd be burying them around, dropping them off. But editing was just me. And it would just be going over things. And when I got bored, I would cut out more. And I got bored, I'd cut out more. And then I would do it in layers. So it'd be like, oh, I hear this too well. I don't want anyone to listen to long, boring speeches. That'll put them to sleep. So let me put something behind it. So if they get bored listening to that, they can listen to something. It was just really about, I don't care if you listen to anything in this film, as long as you come out wanting to do something. So that was the aesthetic of it was just do something, argue about it, you know, argue about it at the end, because the end of the movie is not the end of the movie. The end of the movie is, well, what happens afterwards? Everyone gets arrested, obviously. Is that good or is that bad? You can say it's a terrible thing. That's fine. That is a terrible thing. You shouldn't do what they did necessarily. It's not a solution. And in fact, these days, which is what makes it not of this moment, is you wouldn't have to do that Rube Goldberg thing because everyone has a cell phone. It would take like 20 seconds on a cell phone to do that whole movie. And so, it was really about the power of editing and time. And that's the thing I always like, what well, I think the incredible thing for students now is not the fact that people can make their own film on an iPhone because, you know, a film like Tangerine, which I love, right? It wasn't that cheap as people say, you know, or Catherine Bigelow did an amazing promo for shooting on an iPhone, but she had actors and she had lights and she had horses and she had smoke machines. It's, it's just a camera, right? But what I'm talking about the iPhone is politically. What strikes me about the iPhone is the woman in the back of the car who really 
was cool enough to shoot her husband, partner, or boyfriend being shot by a cop and being able to get that onto the internet. She was cool enough to record it. And that was like, oh my God, that is the power. That's the power of having this tool that you can get out. You know, these people who, or George Floyd, I mean, it's like these things that are recorded, they're recorded. Those are the extraordinary iPhone films, not not the narratives that people can do. So those are the things that change the world. I think they are powerful tools in terms of political statements. But I'm just vamping now, Sue. (laughs) Sorry about that. I think I've said too much. It's so wonderful to hear those stories, though. So important uh, for especially younger filmmakers and artists to to hear about about the process itself. You know, another question I wanted to ask you was about your film, Working Girls, also far-reaching in terms of its politics and how it lands down today. It might have been ahead of its time in the moment it was made, but wondering where that project started for you. Well, that started during the Born in Flames time. And that actually was restored by Criterion recently. There's one shot in Born in Flames where you can see the origin of Working Girls, going back to how Born in Flames came together. It's very hard when you're putting a film together over years, like how do you make the whole film hang together? How do you create a narrative when it's kind of experimental, when you need to tell a story And yet at the same time, you don't have just a linear narrative line. You don't have a script. One of the ways I did it was by creating sequences using the song Born in Flames of montages of women's work. That was one of the things I did in order to pull the film together. And in one of those montages, there's a shot of a condom going over a man's erect penis. So both of the films, Born in Flames and Working Girls, deal with labor and In Born in Flames, one of the issues was women doing men's work. Uh, In other words, construction work. And why shouldn't women do construction work? But some of the montages had to do with women doing women's work, dealing with the condom, women cutting hair, women serving coffee, all the things that are traditionally seen as women's work. But one of the things that, of course, I was concerned about during the five years, I was making Born in Flames was work. How do people work? How do people make their artwork? And of course, I became aware during that period of time downtown of women in the sex industries. And the first way I was aware of it was strippers, because I had friends like Cookie Mueller who stripped in downtown places. Everyone went to see Cookie Strip because it was like a friendly neighborhood place. So everybody went for a beer and watch Cookie Strip. It was like no big deal for her. It was just fun. So that was the first introduction to the sex industry. And there were some porn performers like Annie Sprinkle, who would do performances, you know, with the speculum in her cervix and all of that stuff. Nudity, there was a lot of nudity in art. And then I found out that there were women downtown who were making some money working at one very specific brothel. And they were women who were now very famous women. I mean, you would be shocked if, I, if you knew who they were. And so I thought, this is really interesting because I've always been obsessed with the idea of choice, freedom of choice, and especially important now because it's being threatened in the United States so radically. I'm angry all over again. So that's what I wanted to do. And I also wanted to do it in a way 
that was very focused because Working Girl took place in one long day and Born in Flames was all over the place. So I wanted something very, very focused, but it was similar in the sense that it focused on, on work. It was about sexuality, but it was much more about labor than sexuality. Its start was from Born in Flames and just the question, what is that choice? I mean, would you rather spend eight hours a day renting your body or 40 hours a week in a job that you don't like, especially if you're an artist? If you go to art school, what are your options afterwards? They're very limited, actually. You know, either you become a teacher and there are very few teaching jobs. And these days, especially teachers are really underpaid unless you're tenured. I mean, it's pathetic how little teachers make. Or if you become a successful artist, and I know very successful artists, and it's phenomenal. But back then, there were a lot of struggling artists. And a lot of them worked helping people fix up their lofts. They were handy that way. But if you go and you get a fine arts degree, it's very, very difficult to get a job. And so everybody was obsessed with, well, what do you do for work? And so that it came out of that. It was that question. But the question of sex work, which I'm now back into, I have a book coming out in October. It's not actually my book. I edited the book. And it's been a project that I've been working on now for over a decade is stories by strippers. They're actually memoir stories, beautiful, amazing stories about their own work and lives and interviews with them. There's a story by Kathy Acker that was previously unpublished and by Chris Krause, women like that. And there are stories by women who are currently still working. They're stripping and they're also doing full-service sex work. And I hope that it can be used with uh, showings of working girls for benefits for sex workers and to help fight for decriminalization everywhere if possible. But it was really great to be back in contact with sex workers because I hadn't been, there was a long gap. It was really important, but it was really a question at that point, I think of trying to dig deeper into one area born in flames was very political, but I felt that working girls was political in its own way just by showing something where, again, people had to ask questions. I really wanted to make films at that moment and still do. I want to make films where people ask questions. I'm still trying to make films that way. Like now I'm trying to make a film about an abortionist and it's really just hard to set up because it's very difficult to get the money for it. It's a period piece and it's hard. (laughs) I don't know why I can't just make a straight narrative. It's just not. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you later on as you worked on some other films that were more coming out of more traditional um, filmmaking, you've commented publicly on the ways that they were re-edited. And even though your name is on them, you don't think of them as your own films. And I'm wondering if you can just speak to a little bit of coming out of the art world, making films in your own do-it-yourself way and having your own methods and walking into a more traditional film financing in the context, what that did to your creative process in a way, because clearly the commercial interests in that type of filmmaking is very different. The editing and control of productions and wondering if you can speak to that a little bit. Yes, I was very innocent 
because in the three films in Regrouping, Born in Flames and Working Girls, I worked on them until they were ready to be done. With Regrouping, it wasn't turning out. And then I made it turn out. I mean, I kind of had to. I felt this is just a bizarre, interesting thing that was only interesting to artists is that I had the financing. My big financing was from Saul LeWitt. $3,000, all $3,000. And I felt I had to finish it because Saul gave me $3,000. And so I finished it and I felt that I was the studio. And even if these women were angry at me, I had to finish it. And sadly enough, by the time it's restored, Saul is no longer with us. And he was such a kind, kind, kind man. And that was sad. But I worked on it until it was done. Born in Flames took five years. Working Girls took as long as it took. I kept the brothel set up in my loft until it was done. And then I stepped into a Harvey Weinstein situation. I didn't know that it was a Harvey Weinstein situation until it was. And it was so recut. There were flashbacks put in by a filmmaker named Kit Carson against my will. And Harvey threatened that he would ruin my career if I took my name off of it. And yet he did anyway, because then I had the reputation of being difficult. So the second thing I did, I was made to sign one of those things like a, is it what an NDA or was something yeah, yeah, yeah. before I even went on because I was difficult and because I thought, well, how bad could this be? And then the same thing happened. This guy completely cut it up. He completely put on his own music score. He completely, he completely wrecked it. And it was a three-part thing. Monica Troit did another and he semi did it to her because he didn't have her footage. And then we called the filmmaker in China and said, do not send this guy your footage, edit it, lock it, do everything in China and don't let him touch it because he will edit. He will, he will do all that. And by that point, I was so rattled by everything. I thought, why am I being called difficult? And then it was only after Me Too when I found out that Sean Young, who was not my choice, that was Harvey's choice. She was Harvey's choice. She'd been a Me Too survivor. And I didn't know that. And I just thought it was me. So I was, no, I had PTSD for a long, long time. And I realized that I really am an independent filmmaker. And that if you don't have final cut, then you're screwed. And there are other situations. I recently had the privilege of meeting Sean Baker. I did a Q&A with him at the DGA. And he told me that on Florida Project, he didn't have Final Cut, but he really trusted his producers. He knew and trusted his producers. So it was as good as having Final Cut. Because if you don't, if you're antagonistic to them, it isn't your vision. And I realized my big mistake, and this is advice to anyone listening, is I didn't have a $500,000 project. I still don't. I don't have something I could do for $500,000 because I would have done it in the last three decades. But I also don't have this burning desire to just make a film to make a film. I think there's enough stuff out there. If I feel like making a film, it's something, you know, I feel this, that with all those 80s films, I feel like I really, really want to see how an audience, I want to interact with an audience, learn something about them from them. So I don't really feel their mind. I feel their things in the world. I want to learn about the audiences from the film. They're my way of, because I'm very shy. You know, I'm not a political person. I don't go out and 
speak about, let's say, choice, I don't remember all the facts. I don't remember percentages of people, and I don't know how to retain that. But I do know how to speak passionately about politics through a film. But I don't know how to speak about politics on just as politics. So if I do something, I want to be able to really believe in it and interact about it. I don't want to just make a simple narrative. I don't know. There are other people who do that better. But I do feel that if someone has a story to tell, and I think so many films are beautiful stories to tell that from a person's own experience, but try to have Final Cut, try to be an auteur, and then it's one's own. Because I did a little bit of junkie television, and that was really not to my liking either. I don't know that I love the process of just being out there and doing it that much. I've been writing constantly. Most things have not been made, but I keep raiding my closet. You know, I've written some plays. I've, and I keep trying to find something and revisit things to see if they still mean something to me. Because I just think there are just far too many things out there. You know, I don't know if you have that problem, but if you look at Netflix, you spend two hours deciding what to watch. Even Criterion, it's like, oh my God, which classic do I look at now? And then after two hours, it's like you've seen the movie. It's just, I'm just going to go to sleep. Lizzie, I was going to ask you, you mentioned the book that you're editing. What other projects do you have under development or you're thinking about doing? Well, it's this film that I've been wanting to do. It's called Rialto. We're in casting now. It's a film set in 1953 called Rialto. And it's about a mysterious woman runs a movie theater called the Rialto. And she shows foreign films that have been banned actually by the Legion of Decency. She doesn't know they're banned, but they are. And they truly were banned. Films like Miracle in Milan, the Catholic Church thought they were, they were on a, a list along with films that Ingrid Bergman's starred in because she was having an affair with a married Catholic, her married Catholic director, Rossellini. And she's mysterious. We don't know what she does at the beginning. And the local priest, this is in um, Rhode Island, the local priest just starts to rail against her for showing these films. And this kid comes back from Korea, very, very damaged. And his brother's running for office in for senator. It's kind of like the equivalent of the Kennedys, but Republican and he falls madly in love with her. And he starts to see these weird happenings in the theater. You know, these women come stay overnight at this rooming house that he's staying in because he doesn't want to stay at home. And he finds out that she's running a secret abortion clinic in the basement. But it all kind of blows up. But the film is really about when one freedom goes, they all go. It's not just about the freedom to have an abortion. We don't really see the abortions, but we see the women who come. And it's not really. It's not didactic at all. We just see through the women who come why they need these abortions. And the real argument is about the films that one is allowed to see. Because if you see pieces of these movies and you go, why is a film like Miracle in Milan not allowed to be seen? It's a beautiful movie. And you start to understand. It's like what's happening today with these books being stripped from libraries. So for me, it's really about choice. And that's the most horrific thing happening in this culture today. I've had to strip it down from at one point, Susan Sarandon was involved with it. But then what happened was it's just so sad. We were flying in to meet with her for final script meetings. This is how long I've been trying to make it on the day of 9-11. We were the last plane to land and we see the buildings go down. And of course, the meetings are canceled. 
Then, of course, everything was freedom fries. It was not the right time to do it. So we had to then get the budget way down, kind of see it more stylized, like a war kind of wide kind of movie. So, yeah, we're casting it now, but it's, you know, it's always hard to get the right cast that allows for the budget. That's another project. I'm just hoping that happens. There are projects, sort of a little hard to talk about them because, you know, then somebody says, well, how's such and such going? And you go, well, that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay, I was going to ask you for art and film students like we have at uh, in Simon Fraser University in, in Vancouver who are graduating, wanting to make their own mark, do their own work in their own way and not follow a, a traditional path. What would be your advice to young people coming out of school to hold to their vision and their own unique methods of filmmaking? This is the best time ever to do that because there are so many streamers looking for what they call, I hate this word, content. And because short films are now kind of in vogue, when I was coming through the of short films there were only like three short film festivals and then they died. But now a short films are cool. A lot of people are showing them is to just be, do something that's unique to one's own experience and collaborate, 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 like find your strength, team up with people. And because you have so many different media to work with, the hardest thing of all is post-production. That's the most expensive thing. And to use school not to necessarily just make a calling card, you know, really actually figure out what you want to do. The hardest part of COVID has been as far as it comes to TV, because I know a lot of people who wanted to do episodic TV and all that is the absence of the shadowing program, because that's the way a lot of people got into television. I think it may start back up. So the real question is, do you want to be like an independent filmmaker, in which case, one can do that. I think probably in Canada, it's probably easier. There may be more government money for it. I'm thinking of, oh, Sarah Pauly, I think is a wonderful filmmaker. And there may be more, or Patricia Rosamog, like uh, thinking older filmmakers who somehow managed to work in the million, million and a half dollar range as a bigger budget, but even smaller budget. Adam McGoyan, it's like, I'm thinking the people I would know, but there are ways of making films that are the higher end, starting with a very personal, personal film. And the hardest thing, obviously, is the post-production and the mixing and all of that. But as personal as one can make it. And the other way, let me ask you a question. Do you happen to know whether people are interested in making more independent stuff? Because in the United States, there are two, I would say there's NYU and there's USC. It breaks down between those two. And NYU graduates are much more about personal stuff. Let's call it the Spike Lee School, Jim Jarmusch School. In in uh, the USC, let's call it the Spielberg School. And one is sort of more indie, even though Spike is commercial too. And Spielberg, I think, wants to be more indie, but he's really commercial. But how would you categorize the students where you are? Where I am, both uh, Simon Fraser University and Concordia in Montreal, I would definitely say are on the independent auteur filmmaking, but also in the visual arts for people who are working in film or video, there's certainly an overlap in those areas. So certainly there's so many private film schools around that are producing graduates who are working in the industry and the industries 
you know, big in a place like Vancouver, but the kind of program that we have is, which is more interdisciplinary in nature, uh, the students are looking at more of the indie career. What's so interesting about the connection with an art school is I'm thinking of artists like Erica Beckman, who makes films in a, an art gallery context. And I think that's more and more installations are great, the art world connection. And especially for people of color, there's a renaissance. I think the best art right now are artists of color. And that's amazing to me is both in the world of painting. And I think there are so many opportunities to try to do things in an actual physical space as a kind of installation. I was asking about industry because I think the best way to get into the industry with lower budget film is to go genre. I was never interested in genre, but I think if people are, the best thing is a horror film. If you make a horror film for a low budget, that's the easiest thing to sell. It used to be romantic comedies, but right now, oh, just scare, scare the hell out of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, it started with the Blair Witch Project, but it's still very, very au courant. But I do think that a Columbia University has a great art film project. So I think I'm comparing your program more with them. And it's a great program because it has great big art school with great art spaces available. And what's great is the fact that there's a mix together. But I think my feeling is just make something that's super personal. And the festival route is still a great, great route. South by Southwest, for example, is just pick the festival that you think is right for your film. And then it's still critics. It's still somebody to see it. It's still about that. Like, how do you get it? How do you get it known? I mean, look, Toronto Film Festival, great. It's just find the appropriate festivals. And these days I've heard some of the short film festivals actually pay the filmmakers, which is unheard of. In the old days, they never did. So, but taking that financial thing out, I think it's just finish your film, finish it, show it to people. This is the best opportunity where you have, the other thing to do is somehow stay in school for an extra year in order to make, to make a film. It's not a bad idea. You know, stay as long as you can. <laughs> <laughs> Got access to the facilities. Lizzie, is there anything you'd like to add? No, not really, unless you have more questions. I'm happy to answer questions if you have any more. Oh, good. Well, I guess uh, the question would be, when can we get you up to Vancouver? Since you've never been here, I'm going to have to talk to some people at the school and figure out a way to screen your films and have you up here. I just wanted to say thank you so much for your generosity and joining us on Below the Radar. Lovely to speak with you, Lizzie. Oh, this was such a pleasure. And I would love to come to Vancouver. You know, actually, it would be great. I'd love to show all three films and have seminars. And actually, one of the things I would love to do is read people's scripts in a seminar or see films in an actual seminar situation and actually talk to everybody, look at everyone's work and comment on it and work in that kind of situation and a kind of intimate situation. Because I think I'm really, you know, one of the last things I wanted to say is intuition is much better than intellect any day of the week. And I just feel like that's, that's the one thing that I realized about the art world, that it's, it's really important to trust your intuition because one of the things that happens is from the Clement Greenberg situation, which was all about, it was really an intellect that this is how something should be. 
people started breaking the rules and that worked. And then the thing about screenwriting, what happened at a certain point after I went to movie jail, after the Harvey Weinstein thing, I was in movie jail for decades. But I realized that after I didn't go to film school, I had to learn the rules of screenwriting. So I learned the rules of screenwriting and I actually am a script consultant now really under the radar. You know, I work for some people just for, I'm not advertised, but I do it here and there. There are rules, absolute rules. I don't know how it happened, but Born in Flames and Working Girls are actually three-act structures. I did not know that. (laughs) It so happened that I felt the way, that's just how it felt right. But I feel that if you have an intuition, listen to it and don't let people talk you out of it. If you feel something is right, obey that. And then the other thing, too, is that also means that if you feel that something isn't working, even if it's your favorite scene in a movie, cut it out. And cutting is better. Don't leave it long. (laughs) That's my favorite advice. (laughs) Cut. Just cut it. (laughs) Gotta kill your darlings. Kill your darlings. Okay, take care. Thank you so much. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Lizzie Borden. Head to the show notes to learn more about the resources mentioned in the show. We release episodes every Tuesday, so make sure to subscribe to Below the Radar on your podcasting app of choice to make sure you never miss an episode. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar.